Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. My name is Joe Hagan, and I am here with Emily Jane Fox. It's been a while. I feel like it has been a while. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to speak to you, to see you, to get into this, and I'm I'm happiest yet to hear your interview this week. Ben Smith, co-founder, editor-in-chief of something called Semaphore. Have you heard of Semaphore? I, I have, because I... I exist in the media landscape, and it feels like people are talking about it. So so just give me the lay of the land, your conversation. Ben Smith has been uh, a voice in media for many years and someone whose columns we paid attention to at the New York Times, and now at Smart Semaphore, guy. I know we're getting, we're getting more of that. So what did you guys get to chat about? Well, we talk about a lot about his opening column on Semaphore. He's got a media column that he's established that is basically a continuation of one he did at the New York Times, but this one is about the New York Times. Mm. And it's something of a critique of it and a analysis of it as a business. And I ask him about that uh, to the point that he gets a little irritated, which is always an interesting moment where a reporter is irritating another reporter because of the questioning. But oh, cool. uh, I should establish right at the outfront that I've known Beth Smith for years and we used to sit next to each other at a place called the New York Observer many years ago. Mm. Uh, as you know, a newspaper now owned by one Jared Kushner. Uh, at the time, it was not. But the thing that I have always observed about Ben through his many stages from Politico to BuzzFeed to the New York Times, he was always very uh, tech forward. He was one of these people that was always really interested in the evolution of media through the internet, whereas some of us – we're uh, slow-moving dinosaurs trying to wrap our Lights. heads around. Yeah. You know, I was always like, you know, the proverbial dog being shown a card trick. And uh, he was always like uh, running ahead and racing ahead. So he's... Well, you're, he, you're still typing out all your stories on a typewriter. I, you I know, a yellow that. legal pen. Well, that's literally, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a story right now and I am using a yellow legal pad to, to map it all out. So don't knock the legal pad. It's been a, yeah. a trusty friend of mine for if it, if my it doesn't, entire professional If it's career. not broke, don't, don't fix it. That's exactly right. Um, well, I want to get into the interview, but I think that you and I have to just talk about some of the horrible things that are happening across the country, across the world, really, but um, certainly in the cities that we live in as it pertains to anti-Semitism. And I don't want to put it on Kanye West, and I really don't even want to talk about him, uh, besides the fact that he has you know, 18 million followers, and that is more than the number of Jews there are. Uh, and I think that that is not something that we should forget. And And... We should have people on here and we will have people on here who know a lot more than 
uh, and know about the consequences and the repercussions of that and can speak to what's happening. I know that probably every single person who has opened the internet in the last few days saw the hateful things that were hanging over the 405 here in Los Angeles over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen instances of that kind of hate speech across the internet, across cities and states and small towns and big towns across the country. I, I certainly think that people feel emboldened right now because they have figures in the media who are talking very openly about uh, their anti-Semitism and calling themselves anti-Semitic, which is something in my lifetime I can't really remember. I remember when I was growing up, I'm Jewish. I'm, my, I grew up fairly religious and in a house that um, being Jewish was a very important part of our identity. I grew up in an, a town that was extremely Jewish. My public high school was you know, well over 70% Jewish, I believe. Uh, I went to college where I think a third of the college was Jewish. It actually like, wasn't until I moved to graduate school where I was in a minority being Jewish and, and that was in my twenties. And, and so I am, I am someone who was Jewish and didn't really have the, the normal Jewish experience until I was in my twenties. Um, and my, I remember my dad used to say all the time that, that you barely have to scratch the surface of, of this country to see how anti-Semitic it was. And I didn't, I didn't feel that because I was always in communities where it was the norm to be Jewish. And I, it's a real, it makes me sick to know that my daughter's growing up in a world where she will understand that so much more mm-hmm. than I did, even though we live in a place where we have a lot of Jewish friends and it's a, a Jewish city and a, a Jewish community here. The thing that has been bothering me the most the last couple of days is you see online all these people posting like, you're, you should sign this petition for Adidas to drop Kanye West. And as we talk, it's Tuesday. Adidas did drop Kanye West after many, like mm-hmm. many, Much many, many, long. many days. Mm-hmm. Um, and and people are signing this petition and basically trying to shame Adidas into dropping Kanye West. And it was bothering me so much because if you have to shame Adidas into dropping them, it doesn't like don't who care you've already lost them. The the takeaway from that is at best the most generous interpretation is that they are valuing profit over principle. That's the most generous interpretation. And I think you know the history of that company. The other interpretation is they're valuing profit and they're they are a, a company whose DNA is anti-Semitic, right? That is like the, the only other takeaway that you can have from this. If you have to beg a company and get 25,000 signatures to consider not working with a man who is flagrantly anti-Semitic, yeah. stop shopping with Classically them. Classically anti-Semitic. Just stop shopping with them. Don't sign a petition begging them to stop. Your your dollars are way more powerful than your than your signature. And I know that everyone feels helpless because we are watching something unfold that will have grave consequences and repercussions and be very scary for if you are not Jewish, for your Jewish friends, for your Jewish colleagues. And by the way, this isn't going to stop with Jewish people and it didn't stop with Jewish people and the Holocaust. It's it's anyone who is not a white Christian man. And, and I, I don't think that this is an accident. This is happening at the same time that we're watching um, reproductive rights for women across the country be trampled on and be taken back centuries. I don't think this is an accident when we, we saw what happened 
two years ago with the the protests and during the the Black Lives Matter movement that we saw unfold. It's all part of the same piece. It's all part of where Donald Trump came from. It's it's white men across this country who feel like the world has left them behind and then they're using that brokenness inside of them to revert to very, very scary things that we have seen in other periods of time uh, where that kind of anger has led to extreme hate, extreme xenophobia. And talking about it is important and naming it is important, but it's just a really, really scary time for many people across this country. And I feel sick to my stomach about it. And that's what's at stake in these midterms. That's what's at stake in these votes. The real truth of the matter is that what we're talking about, we're trying to hold it at bay. And it's easy for them to stir hate because hate is easy. You know, it goes to the lowest button in the human spirit. And the gross thing is the way they, you know, the way some have argued, try to put this under free speech in the way that Elon Musk has sort of aligned himself with this guy and not done anything to push back on him, really. And Donald Trump, we hear, doesn't like it. You know, he doesn't say anything. They don't speak up because they know they want to exploit it. They want to be a part of it. They want it to be a part of this whole thing. So the people listening to this podcast, you probably already know what you think, and you probably uh, are, you know, sympathetic to this. Uh, But if anything else can stir you to the cause, anything that can stir you to vote, to think about how meaningful your vote is, to get other people to vote, and to think about what's at stake two weeks from now, because it's about what Emily just said. Yeah, vote is the most important thing. Um, Talk about things, name things, and use your dollars. I mean that both in terms of where you donate to political candidates and where you spend your time, but where you spend your money. And if you have to beg someone to do the right thing, you've already lost them. So just move on from them. Don't ask people to do the right thing. If they don't have that instinctually in them, you know who they are. They're showing you very, very loud and clear. Um, Okay, well, I I think that this is... A uh, conversation that we will continue to have, and I, I promise you, you you all have my word that we will continue to have this conversation. Um, but there are other important conversations, including your your interview with Ben Smith, and I can't wait to get into it. And let's let's roll it. Here we go. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. And now it is my great pleasure to bring on Ben Smith, who is the man of the hour in the New York-Washington corridor of power. Hello, Ben Smith. Welcome to Inside the Hive. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. It is it is always really nice to see you. Ben, Semaphore, Semaphore.com. What is your title at Semaphore? I'm the editor-in-chief. Is that That's it? Just the editor-in-chief? That's my title. What are you, what are you fishing for here, Joe? 
I don't know, founder? Co-founder. Co-founder. Yes. Co-founder, but not publisher. Definitely not publisher. I, I know my, I know my, uh, know um, my limits. I'm very excited. Everybody's very excited to find out what Semaphore is, and we've all been looking at it as we sit here today. It's been out only a couple of days. I'm sure you've been hearing all kinds of interesting stuff about it. It must be exciting when you were like pushing the button to go live with Semaphore and just waiting for the reaction. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was incredibly stressful because we had a lot of what I thought were great stories, but also we'd made this big bet on this idea about transparent journalism and on a format that we thought people would like, and also that people would sort of get what we were trying to do. And actually, I and and then people on the internet were really nice about it and and nice to us, and many people just told us they liked it. I mean, this is totally bizarre, right? Like, I, this is not my normal experience of the internet. And then also. I had said to the team like like months ago that that the way we'll know whether this format kind of makes any sense or works is whether it's really like subject to parody and and that within the first you know weeks and months it's really important that people make fun of it and like do it well and there were like three really I thought quite pretty pretty funny parodies on day 1 and so I felt very good about that. Well, you want to be talked about, that's for sure. Not just that. You want to be doing something that people that is clear enough that people just understand what you're doing. And I think, I mean, as you know, Joe, like Joe and I, and I don't know, you didn't say this in the intro, but we used to sit next to each other in the New York Observer when I was burningly jealous of Joe and he was just like mainlining scoops about, I think it was the 60 Minutes Dan Rather stuff. And I was just mm-hmm. watching him type and then watch it go on to the Drudge Report from his fingers and it was this like sort of electric early internet stuff i think the observer site was crashed several times during this period because of your work um gosh i can't remember what the point of that is except that we're old well i was you know and since those halcyon days (laughs) when we were printing on a on a forum called newspaper you've been to buzzfeed you've been to politico you've done a stint at the new york times and then out of that You've created what you think of as a product of all you've learned in the evolution of media as we have seen it and witnessed it and experienced it and done it. I remember when you first came up with this idea of Semaphore, you mentioned it in the press, and I think I texted you a message and I said, sounds like a cross between Monocle and Axios, which was not that far off. Yeah, you could really, that actually, that is, I mean, I have sometimes said that it's a mutant child of Substack and the FT. But I think that's not a terrible set of reference points either. Those are great, great publications. I want to know, like, um, why did you do this? Why did you start um, Semaphore? Yeah, I mean, I you know, so I obviously, as you said, had been had been around in the early beginnings of things before, which is you know, obviously, you know, it's just, it's it's both exhilarating and fun, and you get to just you know, work incredibly closely with great people and build something together. But on a personal level, it's it's something, you know, you can get a little hooked on. But also, you know, these media institutions, partly because they're just putting out news every day. They're, they're in the flow. They're still printing things all over the place. It's very hard to shut down that factory and retool it, even if you kind of know things aren't working and the elements aren't working and that readers or viewers don't totally love what you're doing. But like, as you're trying to have that conversation, you also have to publish nine different things in that 15-minute period. And I think I felt like at the Times in particular, I had this real front row seat to, I mean, I feel like every story I did was about an institution facing a ton of pressure from its audience to do something somewhat different. And then whenever it tried to 
having this intense snapback from its cable affiliates or or its employees that if it turns the shift three degrees to the left or the right or the center or up or down, that triggers a civil war and that's very distracting. And so it just, I mean, there are these moments of very intense change and they're good times to start from scratch. And, and it just felt like the actual people you're trying to reach are incredibly overwhelmed. You know, if, you know, this is the opinion research. It's, if you talk to anybody, people totally overwhelmed by the amount of incoming they're getting. And also don't know what to trust to the extent that it's like a totally normal behavior to read an article in a publication that you like. Think, huh, this is interesting, but I wonder if it's true. And then go Google six other articles on the same topic to triangulate what's really going on, which is a horrible way to consume media. And so I think we just sort of thought, like, what if we just kind of, I mean, this is my partner, Justin Smith, who's a really, I think, one of the great, maybe the great sort of news business operator of the last 30 years. Um, and it's nice to have a partner, you know, who's just been doing that. Uh, you know, just what if you just kind of in a very literal way try to do a good job for people on the things that they complain about? And it's it's a funny thing about the news business that if if you're in like the um, like in the razor business, if you work for Gillette and people think the handle is too long or too short, like you're constantly doing market research. And if they don't like your thing, you like fix the handle. And in news, if people say that the core element of a lot of written news, which is the news article, that they don't really like it and they can't tell what's a statement of fact and what's the reporter's opinion and what's the institution's view. You're the only acceptable answer in the news business or the main one is you're wrong. You're being lied to by bad people. Like, please think hard about this and come back to us tomorrow. Um, And so I think that it makes it a pretty good moment to try to start from scratch. So you come out day one with a big, long interesting column about the New York Times, where you had just been, kind of analysis of their business. And it sort of sets a tone that Semaphore is a critique of the New York Times in its kind of founding concept. I don't really think that. I, I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, the way I was thinking about it is, you know, I, I am, among other things, the media columnist for Semaphore, had been the media columnist for the New York Times. And my first piece at the Times was about the New York Times as, as this obviously dominant force in, I think, American news and, and unchallenged in a way that hasn't been true, you know, hasn't been true before. And some people would say monopolistic, and it's a kind of complicated idea. But, and so I just thought for the sake of symmetry, I had just left the Times. And then had also just, out of serendipity, had a researcher for this fund that bought a big chunk of the Times and is trying to get them to do stuff, had this researcher call me out of the blue and tell me what their strategy was. So that was that was convenient. But in the Venn diagram of the audience you're seeking, though, in, in the Venn diagram of the Times and the audience, their audience and the audience you're seeking, which are kind of um, smartish, global, English-speaking elite you know, audience, there's a pretty big overlap, right? You know, I think we're all at first, certainly at launch, we're trying to reach people who love the news and are voracious consumers and read a lot of different things. When you launch a new news thing, that's always who you go for. So for sure, that's the Times audience. I would say we're not, I mean, I would say that in our, yeah, I think certainly in the US, there are a lot of, we are certainly going to be competing with them for a lot of the same folks. Um, And I'm sure, and I would hope a lot of people will read both. I think globally, we actually are doing something different. And we're not, you know, when you say elites, we're not sort of targeting either with a sort of monocle audience, which is essentially the business class traveler or the FT or the economist, or, or sort of people who consider themselves sort of capital G globalists. Although certainly I think people all over the world who are not elites also are interested in big stories that connect between countries and most of the big stories these days do. But, you know, we launched in the U.S. and in sub-Saharan Africa. And if you read our 
our you know the the African newsletter that came out and, and or Yinka's story about polling in the Nigerian election yesterday. We're not writing for people who don't care about Africa, don't know that much about Africa, but would like a curious tale from abroad of something you know wild that is mostly ultimately about the United States. And I think what the Times has found, and this is uh, this isn't really inside information. This is just more sort of an outside observation. Is that the reason you know the Times at one point had a Australia columnist trying to write about barbecue for Australians, but the reality is. Australians aren't going to read about Australia in the New York Times. They're going to read about Donald Trump in the New York Times. The, you know, the America story is one of the biggest stories in the world. The Times is the definitive exporter of that story. And so it's a, it's a very high-class problem. But I think it's very hard for the Times to go into another market and say, hey, read about yourselves here, because it's called the New York Times. And its identity is it does incredible coverage of America, and people care a lot about America. And so the most read story in the New York Times, this is a surmise, not data, but I suspect the most read story in Australia in the New York Times is going to be about Donald Trump, same as it is here. Um, we're trying to do something different. There's a huge kind of middle class of people who read in English, work in English, who may be lawyers and therapists and teachers and certainly don't travel business class, but do see the New York Times when they want to read about America and think, wow, this is really high technical quality. It's high journalistic quality. I don't, but it's also totally not written for me. And so, you know, in Sub-Saharan Africa in particular, just because that's where we, we chose to sort of go first, we're hiring great African journalists to write for that audience. And I think that's actually a quite a different, quite a different thing. Yeah. Huh. So, but you've also made a determination about this audience that these Gallup polls you cite in your sort of opening letter about distrust of media. I mean, a big part of Semaphore's sort of actionable concept here is that you're going to address this. You're going to address some idea that out there in the world, there's distrust of the media, and a lot of that is connected to politics, as we know, that uh, people feel it's slanted or they can't tell fact from opinion. And so this also is a big part of what you've tried to do here. And my question is, do you think that the kind of people that read the New York Times – Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, some of the papers that you obviously are in the same, want to be in the same league with or league in, are they the people that can't tell the difference between fact and opinion? I don't, the, I don't think the readers have trouble telling the difference between fact and opinion. I think they find it frustrating. In fact, I think that they totally can tell the difference, but that often you read an article and the article is presenting the institutional view as a fact and not separating it from statements of fact. And I think there's a level of respect for your audience where you want to be able to say, I mean, some of this is really just a problem of the form and of news writing. Like, you know, if there's a really smart analysis piece or a piece that has a couple of paragraphs of analysis, often in the Times or the Journal, you have to look at the byline and say, huh, is this a person whose analysis I respect? Or is this the person who happened to pick it up on a Saturday because that's their job and then like dropped in a couple of random mumbo jumbo paragraphs of analysis because that's part of what journalists do? And there's no good way to signal that. Like if Maggie Haberman's writing about Trump, of course I want to know what she has to say. I wish she would break it out a little more and say it a little more clearly. If I, you know, if if I'm writing about Trump, you might care less, right? And I think that's just that's a reality. That's it just seems weird to not acknowledge it in the story. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. It's interesting because you're making a distinction here, or I don't know if there's a distinction, but you're you're assuming there's a reader who's analyzing the story that they're reading and trying to figure out if they can discern a bias in it. And they feel like they have to do an extra step in trying to figure out what the point of view is because they don't trust that the story is some sort of, you know, flat, factual thing. Is, is, am I getting that right? To a degree. I mean, I think that's a very common experience of reading something, particularly you know a little about it and being like, oh, where, I kind of get where this person is coming from. And I wish they'd sort of put, you know, I wish they'd disclose that a little more clearly. But the thing is, I, it's actually, this is, what you say is really interesting because there's actually, there is a school of thought that says, oh, the way to fix this is to make this a flat factual experience. All people, just, just the facts, right? And actually, if you survey people and you say, what do you want? Often they'll say, actually, what we want is a dry recitation of facts. There was, I think it was Reuters, the Reuters Institute did this incredible survey of, um, of people about news and trust. And one of the findings was that people said that they knew they could trust something if it was extremely boring. And so, like, that is obviously a dead end. <laughs> like, that's not, I don't, I, I don't think that's, if you look at the broader media cultural world, you know, people, in fact, connect with individuals. If you look at political parties, if you look at entertainment, if you look at sports, people increasingly are connected to the individuals, not the institutions, not the faceless brands. And so, to me, like, you have two choices, right? You can try to just squeeze all the, pers- all the voice and personality out and imagine that you're, you have an audience of human beings who just want to consume wire copy. Or you can kind of go the other direction and just say, let's just be totally transparent about what we're doing. This, in fact, was assembled by a human being who often is a real expert on what they're writing about, has something to say. But also, if they have something interesting to say, like part of the reality of if you have a provocative or even slightly interesting analysis is it could be wrong. Because if there's no chance it could be wrong, it's probably totally banal. Why not just say that? I I just think that's how people actually have conversations. That's how people actually consume information. It's how people relate to creators in every other aspect of their lives, except for the news industry, which has lagged because partly it's been such a terrible business for so long. But I think that that's ending too. And so I think it's just a totally natural way if you were starting at something in 2022 to go about your business. And honestly, the kind of the part of journalism that you come out of does not suffer from this issue at all. I mean, I whatever, I have my own, you know, I can grumble about magazine writing on another show. But like when I read you, I know exactly where you're coming from. And I also trust the facts. And I can tell that when you're riffing on the facts, you know the difference between the fact and your riff. And, you know, I mean, there's right. other other traditions in the magazine industry, like making up 25% of everything that I would quibble with. But right. I think, you know. Well, let me just uh, present a change in my business that I think also is is very connected to what you're trying to do here, or at least your critique of what has happened. 
is that uh, the distrust in the media started from the conservative right political in this country. You know, I mean, uh, there's, there was a critique online of actually about Semaphore saying, you know, yeah, well, you can write it as flat as you want and separate it out and tell your view and put the just the facts, man, blah, blah, blah. But if it's facts, there's going to be a whole media bubble on the right that will never accept it anyway because it's factual. And it was, a you know, the critique from the right of the media's facts may have a kernel of truth to it in some cases, but often it was a bad faith critique in order to be able to avoid the facts. Yeah, I, th- I think this was da- what Dave Roberts, who's a very thoughtful guy, wrote. Um, yeah. do, sorry, do you want to continue? Because I read yeah, it. Yeah, well, I'm just, I, yeah, I, can, yeah. I mean, so, you know, I don't, I don't want you to take offense to this, but what you're talking about sounds kind of idealistic, Ben. I don't even think, I think of you as a real, uh, you know, pirate, but. Yeah, or sort of. Right, or, right, or naive. I mean, I think, right, I mean, I think if I came to you and said, I'm going to solve all of society's problems of polarization, you know, by changing journalism, I mean, I think only journalists and a handful of people on Twitter think the media is the source and the solution for all of society's problems. I mean, I think, you know, it's just one of these things. You ask a journalist, what is the cause of X? And they will tell you always what the cause is. You ask a historian and they'll say, well, there are 19 causes, right? And so, and so, I mean, but, but I would say, I think that the, you know, I think there's this totalizing idea, right? Are you saying 100% of conservatives are trapped in a bubble that is impenetrable? Is it 50%? Is it 10%? I don't know. Like some people are, right? And and, I, and then would you say that would you say that the factors that push people, particularly, actually not really particularly in the American right, in sort of global right wing populist movements, there's this sort of alternative factual infrastructure that's like totally disconnected from and rejects a lot of assertions of fact, particularly about national politics. Actually, I found if you cover sexual abuse in a high school. A lot of this goes away. Like a lot of people who might have this politics or that politics will read that story and take it seriously. Um, but certainly, and there's a kind of, you know, a Trumpian thing where you say something that isn't true and dare people to contradict you. Yeah, the Roger say, Stone uh, strategy. Yeah. But I would say that, you know, those political figures are taking advantage of dynamics about that, that are partly about human nature, partly about social media. And this, I think my only argument with Dave in a way, one would be scale. Like I think there's a lot of people who are not totally, who don't totally live in one bubble or the other. And and, and Twitter is a machine for elevating the stupidest and most obnoxious things your enemies say. But actually a lot of the people you disagree with aren't quite that stupid and obnoxious. Um, the other thing is that people on the left and educated people are of course subject to many of the same so dynamics in social media. This isn't to say they're they're equal in their effect on society or that they're the same in their outcomes. But I think if you look at coverage of the Russia investigation on cable news and on, among many of the sort of bien pensant people we're talking about, a lot of people believed that they, that they were a hair away from Donald Trump being exposed as a Russian agent. I, I, I mean, I think that that was you know validated by social media in a way that isn't totally dissimilar to mm-hmm. the two crazinesses on the right. I mean, you know, would, it, it would also... Semaphore, so, would Semaphore so would say, publish the Christopher Steele dossier? That's such a good question. Actually, at our first, um, at our first sort of, our first all hands, which was like two weeks ago when we were all together in person, um, one of the reporters asked that question. And I, and one thing I'd say is I do think different news organizations play different roles. And that's a good thing and, and sort of a normal thing that people that sort of capital M, capital C media critics often, you know, it's, it's appropriate for different organizations to do different things. I think the story of the dossier was obviously something that should have been published. You had Jake Tapper on TV kind of waving this document around metaphorically and saying, we have this document that says the president's been compromised, but we're not going to tell you what's in it. I do think that I would have wanted to, and it's probably true at the time too, we wrote a disclaimer 
that then traveled in one direction while the dot, while the PDF traveled in a different direction. Mm-hmm. You know, we said we don't, you know, we haven't, we're publishing this because it's important, not because we verified it. It would have been nice to staple them together. Yeah. So, so yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I don't have a totally straightforward answer to that question. I think it was an important story to publish. I think there are things you could have done differently. Yeah. You know, a minute ago we were sitting here talking about, you know, the reader's perceptions. But uh, what I was also trying to get to uh, about how my business has changed is that conservatives are not talking to, you know, a lot of media outlets because they are perceived as liberal. And, you know, you set right at the outset, you've written this New York Times column and you've got on the record the former uh, opinion page column editor, James Bennett. He's obviously kind of bitter about being fired from the Times after he published his controversial Tom Cotton op-ed, which roiled the Times, as you describe. Are you sympathetic to James Bennett? Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm I'm sympathetic to everybody, Joe. I'm a reporter. I'm not, fundamentally. And, and but I mean, as a matter of human resources, was this an appropriate disciplinary process? Uh, that's not really my, that's not my line of work. I don't know. I, I think... Um, well, it goes I mean, to the heart I, mean, of I, I, just, I, mean, I called him up and was happy he wanted to talk to me and say what he wanted to say. Um, but, but, what's, but what's the more specific question? I'm certainly sympathetic if anybody who gets fired. Yeah, but it goes to the heart of, of your larger critique of the media and by default the New York Times, which is um, the implied critique, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the Times is in a liberal bubble and that somehow affects uh, your trust in the news. You know, I, I think you're reading too much into that. Like, my, that was a story. That was not a story. But I mean, uh, you know, and this is actually tricky when you are the editor of a thing and you're also writing. That wasn't a story about Semaphore. That was a story about the New York Times and about a place that actually, to me, was is being pulled in all sorts of directions that are that that make it a very complicated place to operate. Um, but that's and, like and, but, if but, the but journal. I, what, what we're doing is actually like a much more simple, literal thing that is not really about the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or anybody else, but is actually about what do people say they want? Can we listen to them and do it? Which is to sort of break down this form of a story to do this the kind semiform. of yes, to yeah, to do this semiform thing to bet on transparency and speak very, very directly in a way that is you know also I would say influenced by Substack and by this shift toward people's voices being very straightforward and, and readers liking that. And so, and so actually from my perspective, I wouldn't, I, I don't know this, you're, you're reading too much into that piece. And I think what we're trying to do is actually quite straightforward and not really so much intended as a critique of anybody else. Well, I would say this, if you were working at the New York times and you tried to hire a reporter from the daily caller, you think that would work out? I mean, I don't know. CNN's launching a morning show in a couple of weeks, hosted by a former reporter, by the woman who had Shelby. You're mentioning Shelby Talcott, this great reporter we hired. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, her predecessor in her job is hosting CNN's morning show. So, yeah, I think probably yes. Yeah, because that is a difference between Semaphore and the New York Times. I, I th- don't you think the culture inside the New York Times would cough up a Daily Caller reporter by like a hairball? I think. People work for all sorts of weird institutions, myself certainly included, and you got to judge people by their work, not by the the yeah. strange, you know, New York publication that we both worked for. Um, yeah. You know, at well, some point. I'm just, but uh, no, uh, but I know the Times. I mean, I think there's a long tradition in, 
you know, mainstream media of tr- of drawing people from conservative media that is maybe on its deathbed because you know some conservative media is sort of fundamentally what you said before it's a critique of of journalism rather than rather than original reporting like that's yeah. fox does very little original reporting does a lot of attacking other yeah. news outlets um but then you know there've always been young reporters who come up that way and find that the thing they really like is finding out what's happening and calling people and and you know become you know, I think the the dean of the Washington Press Corps, in a way, or the, the somebody said to me that the new the young dean is is Bob Costa, who I think started a National Review. I think that's pretty common. So, let's talk about the semaphore. It's so interesting. I mean, I it's, think so too, Joe. It's not. It's a stone's throw from the smart brevity of Axios with a little with a twist, you know. And it, it definitely gives you a, a stone's identi- throw, like a twist on the throw, like a curveball of a stone. Or I'm, I've lost. The well, thread. you're breaking things down. You're breaking things down into simple bite-sized meal that I can, you know. If I see a headline on Twitter from Semaphore, I know it's not going to take me twenty minutes to get through the article. It's going to take me like you know five minutes at the max. But here's the thing that I will say. I'm looking at this one on Don Lemon by the reporter you just mentioned. Uh, That's by Max Tanney. I did not mention him, but let us mention him. Good reporter. Oh, sorry. Different reporter. Max Tanney. Okay, so it's about Don Lemon is going to do a morning show. And it gives you yep. it gives you the um, the basics here. It's a Q&A. With, it is a short Q&A with Don Lemon. But Max's view, okay, which is broken apart from the headline of part of the news, is the following paragraph, which I just want to read. Lemon's move embodies a broader shift at CNN and across the industry to reel in what some executives see as the excesses of the Trump years. That era turned CNN and MSNBC into rival revivalist churches that pleased some of the faithful but won few converts and sometimes alarmed advertisers and corporate owners. Okay, that's Max's view. Now, that looks just like a nut graph in the New York Times to me, right? You would just be describing broadly what is the significance of the news, but it's down there under the headline of views. I mean, what he is saying is, is it his view because it has slightly more colorful language in it? No, because it's analytical. Like, I mean, that's, that's sort of an, it's, I mean, that's right, he's sort of a good example. It's a Q&A. Yeah. And mostly what you want from a Q&A is the Q&A. Yeah. But I don't know, what the reporter think about it? Two sentences worth. That's probably enough yeah. in that case. Like, how much, how much view do you want on my Q&A with Don Lemon? I mean, it does get kind of tricky when you're reading a New York Times article, they tell you what it means in the nut graph. And in some ways, you know, is the nut graph is just this framing of the story. You're telling the people there is a story, here are the facts at the top, here's what we're saying is the news, and then we have a nut graph that tells you broadly what it is about and why you should care. And the semaphore takes as its as the kernel of its idea that you can't trust the framing in the New York Times. So we're going to break it out and to call it the... Yeah, I, I don't... You know, you're, you, I used to... I just left the Times and you're more obsessed with the Times than I am. Uh, I mean, I just well. think we're... Um, <laughs> like that's, it really isn't particularly aimed as a critique oh, of the New York Times. I do any think, newspaper. Any newspaper yeah, I do article. Think, like, I mean, the, maybe like, yeah, the Associated Press, like whoever writes like sure. that. Like no one writes like that. No one talks like that. You didn't do your... You, there was not a nut graph to your podcast. It's not a normal way to communicate in the 21st century. It's a night. It's like, a, I don't know when it, that exact format was invented, but it was invented for print publications where you could cut from the bottom. And 
and and we and I you know and what you're saying is somewhere in there if you dig around and you, you know it's the third or the fourth the fifth or sixth paragraph and you and I know what a nut graph is sure. no normal person knows what a nut graph right. is there is a point where the reporter or possibly their editor or possibly the institution you never really know says what they think the story means in a very very formalized way and i think what you're but you are totally nailing what we're trying to do which is to say strip down this kind of weird wooden infrastructure of the story and make really really clear what's going on to people and try to do it in a very human way not pretend you're an algorithm so that those old those old newspaper formats are like yeah, it's like that's like a Model T Ford and you're creating like an electric car. I love that. I don't I absolutely love that comparison. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm just going to like take it and pocket it and move on. Yes, we are basically it. Tesla. Yes. I'll take 15%. Um <laughs> so um let's talk about what this story says actually. Chris Licht and and this idea of what he's doing. Do you what do you think of uh well first of all, let me ask you this. What do you think of Don Lemon? So can we just like switch to my media reporter hat here? Because this is something I'm just sort of navigating now. It's like I got to be this gossipy media reporter who just sounded off on stuff and threw stones at other people's houses. And now I've constructed this like tiny little glass house. And oh, so I boy. just, I, you know, and so I have to be kind of scared. Um, you know, what do I think of Don Lemon? I hope he'll have my reporters on his morning show. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's my editor hat. Um, yeah. yeah, that's it. That's all I got. And do you, what do you think about the way that Chris Licht is reframing CNN? Let me let me actually like I, I guess I, I also had a little a bit in that in that our media newsletter that I think is maybe closer to how I'm thinking as as a reporter about Discovery CNN, which is just I mean what I asked David Zaslav about in a text message that we ran there was just all it was about the cuts. I mean I think the overwhelming imperative that people can interpret as this way or that way or a decision about digital or a decision about culture is just this incredible imperative to cut costs at CNN at every Warner Discovery place at Netflix not exactly everywhere in the media business, but, you know, there's, it's just the end of this sluice of money that was going to movies, TV, video of all sorts, CNN plus. And so I, I think that you can't really look at any of the decisions that are being made. Like, why didn't Chris Lick go out and spend a billion dollars to have the most famous person in the world host the morning show? Like, well, that wasn't going to be an option in this particular moment. And so obviously they were going to be looking internally. So I think there's a lot about the a lot about what's happening in, you know, in sort of the California side of the media beat, particularly right now. But CNN, in a way, part of it that's, that's you know, where you you got to realize the constraints that everybody's that, that there's just this huge new financial constraint that has to do with the amount of debt that that Warner has. Well, but it also, according to Semaphore here, it says that there's also a shift. In, oh yeah, oh, for and sure. how it's how it's addressing audiences it, and people, you know, some in the on the left or the center left are like mad at CNN and they think they're like appealing to Trumpers and they kind of clearly are trying to have more a door open to the conservative view. Yeah, I mean, I find I, I think that's right, and I think I mean because cable news exists in this space that is, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think CNN. There's a sort of idealized version of CNN that when there's really big news, like when the Russia war breaks out, they're incredible at their jobs. That news that, that news gathering infrastructure is just incredible. But then most days of the week, they can put that infrastructure to work on the most important story of today and not that many people watch. And so what's happened in cable news is that everything else for the last a long time, like as long as I can remember, is just all pure U.S. politics and they've become – 
fundamental parts of the U.S. political system, and it's, makes total, it makes total sense to interpret them in that context and think about what are the consequences of them moving this way or that for politics. I think cable news channels are a very special place on that. Like, I'm not sure the rest of us have to th- have to think of ourselves as being cable news channels and being primarily about kind of like stoking whichever part of the brain most you know attaches the most emotion to partisan politics. I think Jeff Zucker, CNN did an incredible job in the Trump era of keeping progressives and people and and lots of people who were scared often rightly about things Trump were doing just on you know watching and watching you know and I think but maybe how long you know can you just keep hitting that button with people I don't know even even if you know the sort of threats to American democracy are totally real I, I mean I, I think these are challenging questions but I don't think it really makes sense to interpret cable news companies primarily as sort of ideological political institutions. They are primarily businesses. Yeah. Well, and you talk about the um, slowdown in the sluice of cash flow through the businesses. Um, now, you are a business, and now you're starting yes. into this trickle. And, well, I, uh, I, I mean, we're, it's a different trickle. We're, I mean, we've been feeling great about the business. And if you look at our website, you'll see like eight, really blue chip advertisers all over it. But certainly there's a, you know, a lot of people seem to think there's a recession coming. And and so we're, we're very, very aware of that, obviously, and being really careful and trying to sort of, you know, trying to, I mean, we think there's to some degree a silver lining in starting during a recession. There's, I think people have written about this, but you just have to be so careful, so driven about your business in particular that, you know, you can find yourself in a decent place when it's, a, when, 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 when the business cycle turns. So here's my here's Joe's view. Joe's view. Here we go. Uh, so I'm looking at Semaphore. I see those clocks across the top. My first thought was, where's L.A.? Why isn't there an L.A. clock on here? I want an L.A. clock. My second thought is, okay, I'm enjoying this like I'm reading the FT. It's like I'm reading the FT for free. I like that part. So now my question becomes, when are you going to make me pay for this? When are you going to be locking this sucker up? You know, I'm glad you like it enough that you want to pay. We want to like find a lot more people. We find <laughs> I didn't the, say that. We then. need to find like millions more people who feel that way before we start charging. I mean, I think our view is we want to. Yeah, I mean, like any normal purveyor of normal content, you want to get people addicted before you start charging. I think. I mean, you, you, you know, you. But more, more seriously, we, you know, we we feel great about the events and advertising business we're launching with, and 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 we want to build. You know, I think we feel that we're on our way to building a big audience who like us. And then we'll think about what are folks willing to pay? What, you know, how does it make sense to charge down the road a bit? But I think we're not, you know, we're not ideological about revenue. I think one of the big mistakes of the last few years is that everybody talks their book. So, and I was guilty of this myself, I think at BuzzFeed, if you're in the advertising business, you say, well, that look, that makes journalism free to everybody. And that's true. If you're in the subscription business, you say, well, we're independent of the pressures from advertisers. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a fairly tough business. I was actually talking to somebody recently who's in the car wash business. And they were just like, you know what? We just like spend X and makes three X every year. It's really straightforward. You people are crazy to be in the media business. Like it's a tough, hard business. And you you can't, and, and it just makes, and I think Justin is this very experienced operator and I'm reasonably experienced. And our view is just, you know, you have to be totally rational about how you make money to support quality news and not kind of develop some big ideology that one category of revenue is, is, is your killer app because really you're secretly a tech company. Yeah. Um, are you having fun? Yeah, so much fun. I mean, I really love the team I'm working with. I mean, that's, that's, that's the best part of this. 
and just like, you know, like I was, you know, I, I finally slept last night a few hours, which was great. And feeling, yeah, it's just, it's, and I'm like, just honestly, like so thrilled that people seem to like it. You just never know, right? You're like kind of operating away in your weird cave. Well, Ben, you've come a long way, baby. You have, uh, I, you know, you used to sit next to me on in a in a crappy office on the Upper East Side. We were printing a newspaper, and we lived in little tiny, dirty cubicles uh, in a different media age. Yeah, but honestly, fun all the way, right? Like this does, you know, as they say, be it working for a living. And now you're a you're a gentleman farmer, and I'm management. Weird. Yeah. Well, the um, as my uh, the late great. John Homans uh, used to call it the sport of kings, and we must believe that. We must convince ourselves it's ourselves it's true in order to forge ahead in this uh, crazy world in which we live. I am very delighted that you came on and took the hard the hard balls today, Ben. Yeah, no, it's wonderful to talk to you, Joe. All right, take great care and best of luck. Thank you, Joe. Take care. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And love was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts.